Welcome to the Global Inquirer. I'm your host, Nick Mortensen. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to explore how global trends are affecting real lives. Today, we are sitting down with Emmy Lockwood and Anna Von Spakovsky to take a look at the September massacre of elephants in Botswana and global anti-poaching strategies. So Anna, can you tell us more about this case study? The nonprofit Elephants Without Borders reported in September of this year that they had found the carcasses of 87 elephants, many with their tusks removed, in the Okavango Delta Wildlife Sanctuary in Botswana. They found them through GPS tracking and through visual witnesses. Now, this shocked nonprofits, NGOs, and governments around the world because Botswana has been known as a sanctuary for elephants and other vulnerable species. Botswana's Department of Wildlife and National Parks actually issued a statement that disputed these claims, saying that there was only a maximum of 53 that were found and many had died from natural causes. Now, despite this controversy, it's not disputed that elephants are dying. This was particularly shocking because Botswana has been known as a wildlife sanctuary. For many years, they've actually had a very controversial policy called a shoot-to-kill policy. Now it's unwritten, but nonprofits are in agreement that this is a policy that they've been using. Basically, they're not shooting for self-defense, but if they see a poacher, they are allowed to shoot on sight. Now, this is seen as a human rights abuse by the UN and others, but their government claims that this has been the strategy that has been very effective in protecting elephants. In May of this year, their president ordered anti-poaching units to be disarmed, and many say this is the reason that poachers were able to come in and kill these 87 elephants. There are many issues at play here besides the argument over whether to arm or disarm rangers. There's a ban on hunting, so some claim that this is stopping tourism from producing enough economic output for the locals. This is also a product of intensified poaching in surrounding countries, and so elephants have been moving into Botswana, and organized poaching units have also been moving into Botswana because of depleting numbers in other countries. So my feeling is that a lot of the terms, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the facts of conservation efforts and anti-poaching efforts aren't really conveyed to most people. I mean, all I really see most days is just, you know, send $5, save an elephant's life. Emmy, can you talk more about kind of the basics, the terms, the specifics, and kind of nuts and bolts of what anti-poaching efforts look like? So earlier this week, I spoke to reporter Rachel Bale from the National Geographics, um, and she gave a really good outline of uh, what anti-poaching efforts looked like and what poaching itself looks like. The sphere of anti-poaching efforts is pretty broad. I mean, of course, you have the governments of each country are always involved to an extent, um, but in most cases what they're able to put towards the effort is not nearly enough as what's required. Um, a lot of park rangers, for example, you know, don't have enough fuel for their cars or, um, you know, walkie-talkies or even basic things like boots. So that's when um, NGOs and other outside organizations step in. There's a mix of NGOs that are based in and run by Africans or, um, you know, people uh, who live in the country where the anti-poaching effort is, is happening. And there's also a lot of Western NGOs that are involved, both in terms of providing monetary support and training and resources. And... Usually, 
those Western NGOs are backed by grants, sometimes from family foundations, uh, wealthy individuals, or uh, small donations from people who just want to help out. Okay, great. Um, and so what do the anti-poaching efforts look like um, in action, um, like on the ground, I guess? Depends. There's a couple different things when you talk about anti-poaching efforts. First, there's the actual rangers, the people who do the patrols on the ground at parks. Um, they often carry weapons because poachers nowadays are more uh, militarized, more organized, so the rangers need to be able to defend themselves. Um, there's some debate, not some, there's a lot of debate over whether militarizing anti-poaching rangers is the best approach because it can often result in um, human rights abuses. And um, there are also anti-poaching efforts that are more community-based, for example, programs that seek to provide alternative livelihoods to people who might become poachers, um, because many people turn to poaching simply because they have no other means of supporting their family. So many efforts come in and help them learn skills or help them start businesses so that they don't have to resort to killing protected wildlife. There are also anti-poaching efforts that involve education, a lot of times people simply just don't know that killing these animals is against the law. And also education efforts can help people understand why um, protecting the animals is actually to the benefit of the community. So why do people resort to poaching? Well, there's obviously the market demand for poaching. And generally when people demand something, there will always be a seller for that product. And it's an economic necessity um, in some cases for people of the local community. There is a variety of motivations for sure. Um, I think poverty is definitely the primary driver. Some Poachers are simply poor people who go out and shoot a protected animal as a way to feed their family. Others are community members who have been recruited by more organized, more sophisticated, um, organized poaching syndicates. But regardless, poachers are or tend to be the very bottom of the chain, um, you know, they're the first to be thrown in front of the bus if, um, you know, inv an investigation uncovers a poaching or a poaching or trafficking ring and they are, you know, they're, they're easy targets when it comes to combating the illegal wildlife trade in general. Practically speaking, local communities who actually do the killing of the animals, they have a really different relationship with the exotic animals because they are actually living in there. We see the animals on planet Earth and we're in awe, but if you're actually living with exotic animals, they could kill you. They could ruin your farms. They could do a lot of things to you. So they're not as in awe of these creatures as we are. And these animals frequently trample um, fields, ruin crops, um, all sorts of disasters, which leave the local community members without another source of income and another source of food. So NGOs come into play um, as a well, a non-governmental source of support for the efforts of conservation. NGOs 
like the Akashinga, the Elephants Without Borders. They keep statistics. They run training programs. They do a lot of education efforts within, you know, community and children and just raising awareness for what conservation means on the ground. And can you talk to us more about what poaching looks like? So poaching can look like any sort of hunting, any sort of um, even killing animals for personal use, like a community member killing an animal to eat, that would be considered poaching. And poaching look like uh, ensnaring animals in conservation parks, shooting them down, uh, all these horrible things. And it's for economic gain, generally. And so how is it structured? So a lot of what we're talking about is the poaching of elephants, the poaching of rhinos, um, and then harvesting those those animals for their ivory, their horns, their tusks, or their other parts to then be sold in the international market. What does that look like? So do the poachers sell internationally themselves? Do they work with somebody else? What's kind of the structure for it? So the poachers, they do the physical act of acquiring the ivory or the desired animal product. And then the product goes to a middleman, and the middleman tends to have many poachers, many different connections, kind of like a gang system the poacher who will often report to a middleman who works with in or, uh, several different poachers. And so he'll collect, let's say we're talking about ivory, he'll collect the ivory from those handful of poachers. And then it can go to somebody else who is collecting ivory from a handful of middlemen. Then it'll have to move on to the people who actually have the ability to smuggle the ivory out of the country. Often that involves, you know, bribing officials and <laughs> a lot of corruption. And then from there, once the ivory is out of the country, it could move on to either other smugglers who will take it on further or to the final sellers. And then on top of this, you have the big boss, perhaps the kingpin or, you know, a, a little cabal of people who are overseeing the entire thing. These products are being sold internationally, but who's buying them? What are the biggest markets? Yeah, so there are markets all over the world. Um, one of the largest is China, Japan, Thailand. There are places in Southeast Asia. I want to focus a little bit on China just because their economic boom in recent years has really contributed to the ivory trade because there is increased demand for ivory there, um, both as a status symbol um, and as use as uh, traditional medicine. So many countries still have legal domestic markets for ivory. China has recently banned their domestic ivory trade in 2017, and this is a great step forward for them. Um, according to the World Wildlife Fund, who did opinion polls in China, 14% of respondents claim to have purchased ivory in the past 12 months. This is a significant drop from the 31% that said that they had purchased ivory in the past 12 months in their pre-ban survey. So. We are seeing results. Now, are the results as good as people had hoped? Not necessarily. We may still have to wait a few years before we see any significant drops because there is still very low education in China. A lot of people don't realize that ivory is coming from poaching. And another issue to consider here is that ivory that has been cultivated legally versus ivory cultivated illegally, it looks the same. But isn't that kind of the perfect conservational tactic? You know, you farm the animals, you get exactly what people want to buy, uh, and you preserve the wild populations. Isn't this done deal? It, 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 like, doesn't that work? Well, in the case of John Hume in South Africa, he runs a huge rhino farm. And South Africa in 2017 legalized the domestic trade of rhino products. And 
John Hume is currently in a financial crisis because of the expense of securing the facilities for his rhinos. So far, no one has actually sold any rhino horn legally. Um, John Hume had an auction last year. Uh, (laughs) There just wasn't really anybody up for buying it. I think it's gotten so much negative publicity um, and the illegal trade routes already exist that people haven't really been willing to step forward and say, hey, I'm going to buy your rhino horn because they know how much bad publicity that would get them. So he has a huge stockpile of rhino horns, but no one wants to purchase these horns and he's spending all his money on securing the parks for his rhino farm. Yes, so we have one operation in South Africa that isn't doing so well, but that's only one example. Are there other examples of farming exotic animals that are detrimental or just aren't working? I actually spoke to Rachel Bale about the tiger farms in Thailand. Let's see, there are, in Southeast Asia, there's such a thing as tiger farms, where tigers are bred in captivity for the trade in tiger parts. It's a little bit different because... Um, whereas with rhino farms like John Hume, the rhinos are essentially wild. You know, they're living in like a wild setting, although they are in a protected area, whereas the tigers are bred basically like farm animals kept in really horrible conditions. Um, And what we do know about tiger farms is it's very clear that rather than undercut the illegal market for wild tiger products, Because the original idea of tiger farms was to say, hey, well, if we breed tigers in captivity, maybe people won't be poaching them from the wild anymore. That didn't work at all. Um, It simply stimulated the market. You have more and more people buying tiger parts, both captive bred and wild. And on top of that, it makes law enforcement really hard because um, customs officers and the like can't tell whether the tiger was bred in captivity or whether it was wild. You know, if you're looking at a tiger skin or a tiger bone or whatever, there's no way to tell. Um, so all it really does is just make it easier to smuggle things on the black market. And it's got all kinds of animal welfare concerns and sort of sends a message that it's okay to buy tiger products. So in that sense, um, tiger farming at least hasn't worked out at all as a conservation measure. So farming might not be as effective as one would intuitively think, but why not just shoot poachers? Why not just have rangers, you know, follow these animals around or just be on these these game reserves or on this land and fire at anybody who tries to poach them? You know, that is what some countries have tried to do, and I really wish it were, were that easy. But unfortunately, there are a lot of problems with this very hardline approach. Yeah, so actually the UN classifies shoot-to-kill policies as extrajudicial killings, but they don't make that judgment about simply giving rangers weapons. Um, So most anti-poaching rangers are going to be carrying weapons because they are operating in a law enforcement capacity and they're up against poachers and traffickers who are carrying weapons themselves. So in the same way, you wouldn't send a police officer out into a dangerous situation without a means of defending himself. You wouldn't do that with a park ranger or an anti-poaching ranger. 
However, shoot-to-kill policies is something entirely different and much further down the scale of militarization of anti-poaching. There aren't that many countries that allow shoot-to-kill policies, and that's because it very quickly does lead to human rights abuses and can be considered extrajudicial killings. What a shoot-to-kill policy is, is that um, basically authorizes um, the law enforcement officer or the ranger to shoot to kill anybody they suspect of being a poacher. So what that means is that suspect doesn't get a fair trial, they don't get a chance to defend themselves, and unfortunately, that leads to many accidental deaths as well. So, for example, um, at a park in India where the rangers have been given uh, a shoot-to-kill policy, there was an investigative report that came out a little while ago that showed um, kids had been shot. I think I seem to remember one uh, young person ended up losing their leg because a ranger thought they were a poacher when really this kid was just walking home um, to his village, which happened to be, you know, along the edge of the park. So they're, they're definitely, <laughs> definitely a very controversial policy. If you have a shoot-to-kill policy, this is a human rights abuse because, you know, people are not getting fair trials, people are not getting the opportunity to defend themselves, and there have been a lot of cases in which innocent people have been killed by these patrols. Now, a shoot-to-kill policy is not the same thing as just arming rangers. That's something that, you know, police forces are armed and they're not going to use force unless they need to defend themselves. So that's what a lot of countries use. Unfortunately, this also has had some problems, especially in countries that have high levels of corruption that already have issues with their police forces. For example, Tanzania had a major crackdown on elephant poaching in 2013 in response to high levels of poaching. And they converted their civilian anti-poaching force into more of a paramilitary force. And unfortunately, there was widespread arbitrary arrests, use of torture, rape, and really just terrorizing of, of villages surrounding these elephant sanctuary areas. So arming police or anti-poaching forces is a viable option and it's an option that can work, but it has to be accompanied by oversight, by proper training, and by proper government institutions that can regulate their actions. So I could probably spend all day sitting here talking about methods that don't work, but could you all tell me about methods that have worked or have been proven to work or are promising? So the most notable method at the moment is through the Akashinga in Zimbabwe. And the Akashinga are a group of all women anti-poaching rangers. It's a really cool program. Um, I think empowering women is uh, increasingly becoming seen as a really successful way of running an anti-poaching project, especially because I think, you know, as the example you just gave shows that they can be tougher and that they are better at de-escalating a situation as opposed to running into something guns blazing, ready to be aggressive. So overall, the best thing that can be done to support these rural communities in the efforts against poaching is to provide alternative livelihoods for community members. I think there are a handful of things that we know work, and it's entirely dependent on the situation. 
For example, I've been really impressed with what the Akashinga group is doing. I think uh, working with women and doing more community-based efforts is really promising. Um, But you can't have an effective anti-poaching strategy just with law enforcement alone. You also have to include education and funding for alternative livelihoods and, you know, economic development and community development. I think effective anti-poaching really is as a whole about de- about um, developing a region with conservation in mind. So in the case of the Akashinga, it works so effectively because the women who take care of the children in the communities, they are able to promote conservation to their children and to other community members. So really, education and development is where we should focus the long-term efforts for conservation. And going forward, what should we be doing? Where should our money be going? Where should our policy focus be going? Kind of what is the best step forward for ensuring that our anti-poaching efforts are most effective going forward? Rachel had some great suggestions for how we as Americans can get involved and help. Donating to NGOs that have a proven track record of success is important. That can go a long way because anti-poaching efforts are often severely underfunded. I think the other thing people can do is to um, sort of work the political angle. Like I said, the U.S. is probably the second biggest market for illegal wildlife products in the world. And our government doesn't pay that much attention to anti-trafficking efforts. So people can, you know, contact their representatives in Congress and let them know that these are important issues to them. The first and most important thing would just be awareness because, you know, a lot of people think this is this is an African problem, this is a Chinese problem, this isn't our problem. And that really is not true. The United States is actually, as Rachel tells us, the second largest market for illegal wildlife trading. So it is our problem, too. This is just another reason why working with local communities is extremely important. There are some efforts to help these animals, for example, creating large sanctuaries that can actually push the animals and humans into greater conflict. And that's all we have for this week. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer, and thank you to Emmy and Anna for all of your great work on this episode. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud and like us on Facebook for more content and new episodes from the Global Inquirer. We'll see you next time.